Welcome to episode 48 of Frank Reactions, the podcast where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name's Tama Frank. Today's guest is Jerry Manis, who has written several books on project management, including Napoleon on project management, another one called Managing the Gray Areas, and his latest, which has a somewhat drier title, Resource Management and Capacity Planning Handbook. Now, despite the dry title, I did pick this book up, and it is a really valuable book and actually not at all dry to read, so I'd really recommend that you check it out. I will have a link to it in the show notes, but again, it's called The Resource Management and Capacity Planning Handbook by Jerry Manis. And what he focuses on in that book is the capacity from a human resources perspective of being able to take on more projects and work and setting priorities for work. And this is, in fact, hugely important to delivering good customer experience because, as he pointed out, overloaded employees are stressed, they make mistakes, and that does not translate into good customer experience. So enjoy the interview, and I'll chat with you briefly at the end. I'm Jerry Manis, and uh, I've written a number of books on management and project management and resource management and so on. Uh, I think uh, the, the first one that was probably most popular was Napoleon on project management. I took <laughs> lessons from Napoleon's rise and fall. And it's funny, whenever I do presentations, people expect me to be uh, you know, about uh, five foot or something, and I'm six four. so they think, you know, they think I wrote a book on Napoleon. But <laughs> Of course, they probably expected Napoleon to be about six four. So <laughs> yeah, 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 it could be, it could be. So, um, yes, I wrote Napoleon Project Management, another book called Managing the Gray Areas. It talks about the common dilemmas uh, and uh, ethical dilemmas and gray areas that most leaders face, and several other books. A lot of it is around uh, the uh, crossroads of project and organizational uh, leadership. And uh, the latest one from McGraw Hill is the Resource Management and Capacity Planning Handbook, because I found that was an area that uh, there, were, there were hardly any. In fact, there were no books on it that just focused on that that specific part of uh, of trying to implement projects and organizations on just the resource and capacity planning part of it. So uh, I, I focus on that one. Well, and that's what really intrigued me because I hadn't seen anything like that either. And what I find is. A lot of organizations right now have bought into the fact that they need to provide better customer service and customer experience, but they haven't thought through how that translates into the processes within their organizations. And resource planning, of course, is a big part of that. So um, at the risk of people turning off when they hear something that sounds really boring, like resource planning, yeah, yeah, maybe you can tell us a little bit about resource planning and capacity planning and how that, you know, how that fits into the picture. Sure. And it's funny you mentioned that about the, about dry because I came up with all these these clever titles for the book and and it's funny because the book itself I tried intentionally to make sure you know with like with any of my books to make sure that they're not dry because certainly it's a, a field that could certainly uh, you know be be right for some uh, some dry material. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had all kinds of ideas like wrestling the demand shark and all kinds of like you know different aspects. But then you know the publisher felt that uh, you, know, the, you know especially in, in the business world uh, since it was uh, such an undiscovered topic, uh, being very clear in the title about you know straightforward what it is. So if people are searching for something, they'll easily find it. Yeah. So that, that <laughs> let itself there. Yeah. But. Uh, 
Yeah, but uh, capacity planning, as far as what it is, uh, it's really part of the – if you're in an organization, you're planning your project portfolio or you're trying to plan you – know, some organizations call it investment planning or you're taking on initiatives. Uh, and really it's a sub-process that's part of that that says uh, while we're assessing this incoming project pipeline or the incoming work and you're trying to select, okay, what can we take on and when? Capacity planning is that sub-process that really means it's assessing at a role level what resources do you have available and when to be able to take on that work. Uh, you're not necessarily assigning anyone yet, but you're just assessing your capacity to take on the work because otherwise what happens is, and which uh, unfortunately most organizations end up doing, is they plan to infinite capacity and they take on all the work as if they have all the capacity in the world and then they find out, they open the floodgates and find out the hard way that they really don't have the capacity and everything slips. And uh, mm-hmm. I always like to refer to a, a personal checkbook as an analogy. So let's say you don't keep track of your checking account. Uh, you don't know what's in your account, and you need to buy a car. Or you need, you know, your car broke down. Uh, well, you, you, there are two types of people. There are some that say, "Okay, I'm going to buy it anyway and hope for the best," and you may be surprised. Or you can say, "I'm not going to buy it. Maybe I could have, but I don't know what's in my account. I'm afraid to buy it." And the same thing happens on a large scale. The organizations are either afraid to take on work that they otherwise could, or they take on everything, and then you know the, the people have to suffer for it. And that's uh, that, that's really what happens. So it's really all about knowledge and letting you make informed decisions. And what sort of differences do you see among organizations of different size when it comes to making those sorts of decisions? Well, I think the same concept applies to organizations of any size, but how you execute it and the degree and the rigor with which you execute it, that can vary. So certainly a large enterprise organization, you know, they're going to need uh, enterprise uh, project portfolio management tools or, or something that can bring together all the, the, the elements they have to, for, for instance, looking at your in, in, incoming work and being able to prioritize and rank it, and at the same time, maybe on a split screen, being able to say, okay, what roles do we have available to take on this work and when? What's what's the timeline look like in terms of the roles that we need and who's available? And that's hard to do in spreadsheets when you're talking about an enterprise with shared resources, uh, mm-hmm. whereas uh, some, you know, some of today's tools make it very easy to do. Um, now, a smaller organization, you know, maybe you have uh, 25, 30 people or you know, under 100 people, then maybe you can start getting into that with spreadsheets and it becomes a little bit easier. So you need to have the right tool for the right job. Although I, I get the feeling, too, that a lot of smaller organizations are still very much at the jump on opportunities, let's not spend the time planning stage. That does happen a lot. And then you get people that are jack of all trades and try to, you know, the smaller the organization is, the, the more resource, resource constraints you are so arguably it's even more important to do this because it's you don't really have the resources to do a whole lot so you need to pick and choose what which things do you have the capacity to take on so it's really it's it's a mental exercise at the least and then as you as the organization gets larger it's, you need more formal tools to be able to do it so capacity planning then talks about both the human capacity as well as the financial capacity right well, in the book that I wrote, I was focused, and I have a whole thing in the introduction talking about that. I was focused mostly on the uh, the, the human, the, the capacity of the people. Um, but now, if an organization does their capacity planning, when you're looking at investments, you're assessing both the financial capacity and the, the human resource capacity. So you're assessing both. But uh, what I was specializing in with this book was really the uh, the people side of the resources. Uh, in fact, I was concerned 
certain people might get a little confused about that, so we had somewhere in the subtitle of the book, I think, uh, maximizing the, uh, the uh, value of your limited people resources. That's probably what got me to pick up the book. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to make sure that people focus on it. And it's kind of funny because I found out later, I was speaking with, uh, with a colleague in France, and uh, he was saying, you do realize that when this is published in France, you're going to have, to have a different title, a different uh, title because uh, limited in, in French, their, their translation is stupid. <laughs> maximizing the value of your stupid people resources. Ah, <laughs> uh, limite. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's good thing someone caught that for yeah. you. That could have been bad. In trying to assess their capacity to take on projects, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see companies struggling with in trying to do that and do it right? Well, the first mistake is not doing it and, and or not having someone responsible for at least owning the process. But I see what happens is sometimes they get the, the other extreme. They get too detailed and they confuse it with resource management, which happens a little later in the process. Uh, once the project is, is selected, initiated, then it involves requesting and assigning the resources. But with capacity planning, you just need something lean. At that point, you're just assessing at a role level uh, what's required to take on the new initiatives. Uh, and so some people have a tendency to over-design. And uh, another mistake I see a challenge is they try to do it without the proper tools, and uh, they have what I call Groundhog Day meetings. So they have the same <laughs> meeting every day where they look at a spreadsheet of all the of all the, the projects and the people, and they try to match it up and the next day they revisit the same list you know trying to get current on things when if they had the, the proper tools to be able to um, to assess that it would be a little bit easier so what sort of tools are useful and and maybe if you can suggest some that would be useful for smaller organizations i'm assuming that really big ones have teams of people who can do the analysis but sort of yeah i i think any the, the space that you want to look in are project portfolio management tools or ppm tools anything that has that deals with shared resource pools and being able to uh, to do that kind of planning and portfolio management that's what the ppm is project portfolio management okay yeah. the, the you know, the effective tools. And then smaller organizations, if they can find a smaller scale project portfolio management tool, just something where you can look at shared resources and try to uh, get a sense of, of uh, allocating them and, and reserving them. Well, and one of the really important things that I think this brings to the fore is trying to break down some of the silo issues. Because to do a successful customer experience project, for example, you really need to be able to work across silos. So how does that figure into the capacity planning process? Well, I think that's a key point, too, because silos are such a big part of any organization, and breaking through those is critical. And, in fact, the, one of the number one things with uh, capacity planning is uh, the idea to make it work is to try to break through those silos. And uh, as, a, as a paradox, if you can do effective cap capacity planning, it helps you break through that. One thing, a good friend of mine and a colleague, Judith Glazer, who wrote a great book called Conversational Intelligence, she always says everything happens through conversation. And I think the same thing holds true here. And Patrick Lencioni wrote a great book called Silos, Politics, and Turf Wars. And mm -hmm. he talks about you, know, you have to have a rallying cry or a unifying goal or something that everyone can tackle together. Yeah. So in this case, I think the main issue to tackle is that 80% of the work in most companies is constrained by about 20% of the resources. So if you have, uh, now of course this is for large organizations, 
but usually it's a handful of resources are constrained because they're the, they're the ones that are the bottlenecks. They're really busy. It's needed. They're needed on everything. Like getting so IT you, support in a lot of yeah, companies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so if you focus on that and then have ongoing dialogue with these the ver- representatives of the various silos that are competing for these resources about how to leverage them in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And what I think some companies try to do is they try to make a rocket science out of it, and they're looking for silver bullets. And they're really the right answer is they need to get the contending parties in a room together, the people vying for the same resources, and have a conversation. But what they need to do is, is understand what it is they're having a conversation about, which which are the real constrained resources that are holding up the, the work that's important to the organization, and then have a dialogue about uh, you know, getting the right priorities. So that leads right into my next question, which is, what can organizations do to do a better job of setting those priorities? Well, I, th- I think one thing is to understand the criteria involved for the prioritization and the fact that it requires a multi-pronged approach. It's not just, okay, let's you know come here and you know, assign a priority to something or, or a rank. Uh, I think, and in the book, I talk about three areas, uh, particularly with prioritization. It's almost like you have to look at priorities through three lenses. One is strategic alignment to say how well does do these pieces of work align strategically with the organization and what the organization is trying to do. So that's one lens. Yeah. So you, you, you know, you look at a group group of work and you say, okay, how well does each you know do each of these uh, pieces of work align strategically? The second is the scoring. How do they score uh, comparative to each other in terms of the risks versus benefits? So you know, what are the benefits of each versus the risks? So let's say each of them has a certain benefit and risk score, and certain ones offer more benefits than others. Some are more riskier than others. If you look at that, plus the lens of how well they align with strategy, and then the third area are, is what I call classifications, and that's going to be different with every organization. Sometimes they might look at classifications like, well, we want to be able to classify our work by uh, we want a certain amount of growth projects or we want a certain amount of projects in this division versus that division or certain things we're trying to push. So between the strategic alignment or the degree of alignment, the uh, the scoring in terms of risk benefits and how they classify in terms of how you want to organize the, you know the priorities in the organization overall if you look at those three together then you can assign some kind of a, of a priority to it and and it's really a human thing it's not something where you can have a system automatically say oh this I'm going to calculate this these algorithms and come up with a priority because <laughs> I see companies try to do that too and it's it's really Nothing beats somebody, you know, really looking at those those things. I wonder too how often you get a challenge. Again, thinking of smaller organizations, if they opportunities come up at various times during the year, so it's not like they can necessarily sit down and rank projects against one another all the time. Absolutely, that's <clears throat> that's a very good point. And if they look at where things are in the process, if you look at, uh, let's say you're looking at a bird's eye view of a process, and usually there's some kind of an intake process where work comes in, you do some kind of a brief assessment to say, okay, is this bigger than a bread box? Uh, you know, who in the organization should tackle this work? Uh, you know, even if you're an organization of five people, you know, who's best to take a look at this? How would we size this? And, you know, things like that. So it's just a general classification. And then before you actually start to take on the work and say, okay, yeah, let's 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 go, let's do this. Um, what people forget is it has to hop over to another 
part of the process, and that's where the investment in the capacity planning comes in. And even if that's an abbreviated process where we say, now let's look at this in comparison with all the other things we have going on, and let's say, where does this fit? Should this bump something else? Can we squeeze this in? Do we have the capacity to take it on? There has to be that step, whether it's formal or otherwise, where you assess it in the great scheme of things. Now, there's going to be fast path things where we say this is urgent and this has to come in right away. And and one model I, I, I often recommend for that is something that dated back to, to Eisenhower and then Stephen, Co- Stephen Covey popularized it, but that was just a simple importance versus urgency matrix where you look at something and say, if it's highly important and highly urgent, well, we have to take that on right away regardless. But if it's if it's important but not urgent, that one we schedule. And we say, right. okay, when can that be scheduled based on when we have the people? So it's really a, a quadrant. The uh, thing I always thought was odd about that quadrant is why would you have anything in the not important, not urgent category? Glad you mentioned that because I, I, I raised that same thing, and I think I even I – forget, I forget, but I think I even talk about that in the book. Uh, there's certainly the, the obvious ones are the ones that are not important and not urgent, in which case you should dump that right in the trash. Right. But the things that say they're – Urgent but not important. You think, what on earth could be urgent but not important? And those are the things that I always put a big question mark around because those are things that need a closer look because either, either A, it really is urgent and uh, it really is important and it didn't really get the, the credence it deserved or it wasn't uh, articulated correctly. Yeah. You know, so sometimes you do get like that, or it's not really urgent. Uh, you know, you could have something that says, "Okay, it's urgent but not important." Well, maybe it really isn't urgent. It's urgent to that person. Is it urgent in the great scheme of things to the organization? Maybe it is. Maybe people didn't give it a second look. So that, that's where I usually put a question mark of those and say those need closer examination to say where should this be? It obviously shouldn't be in uh, in the uh, important but uh, or urgent but not important. <laughs> Yeah. No, that's a good point. I used to try and apply that thing to my to-do list, but I had way too much in the urgent and important category, and it just becomes useless if you've got too much in there. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That happens a lot, too. And that's where I usually use this as a first pass yeah. if, you're, if you're just having a you – know, it's either an individual or a small organization as a first pass. But then those are the things where you need to start saying, okay, where does this fit with the strategy, with what I'm trying to achieve uh, where does it fit in terms of the benefits versus the risk versus the other things that I'm competing with? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then if there's any other ways, I, I classify it. But even if, even if those are thinking steps and not a whole big formal thing, it's still important to consider those aspects of it for prioritization. Right. Now let's talk a bit. I mean, my audience is really focused on customer experience. How does capacity planning and this whole resource planning issue tie into customer experience? What's the impact it has there? Good customer experience begins with good employee experience. I know that's something uh, Richard Branson and other, other, a number of others always talk about. And uh, I think Hal Rosenbluth wrote a book called The Customer Always Comes Second. Yeah. <laughs> and he talks about the, you know, really, uh, it's, you know, it's um, obviously customer experience is, is vital, but uh, a good employee experience can help, you know, generate that. And you know, what I find is, is, of course, you know, overloaded, overworked employees are stressed. They make mistakes. It usually doesn't translate to a good customer experience. Well, and I would think customer experience also could be one of those filters because, oh, yeah, I mean, improving the customer experience can be very important to the economic survival of the company. Absolutely. That, that, that's one of the things I, you know, I meant in terms of classification of, of how 
uh, companies classify work. And I offer a bunch of examples in the book of, of things you could classify things as. A lot of organizations pick, and that might be one of them. It might be operational improvements. We're improving the, the, the way we, you know, we provide something faster to customers. Uh, customer experience is absolutely one of the, uh, the key filters that you could use um, there. So I, I think it's both. I think customer experience could be a filter of the work itself. But in terms of capacity planning in particular, I think that assures that your organization is, is really considered the available capacity to take on the work. So you're not people aren't flooded and overloaded. Right. And um, you know, in general, the, the companies that, that do give some credence to capacity planning tend to be a little more planful and purposeful in how to use its most important asset, which is its people. So I, I think from both of those aspects, from the, the, the filter of the work itself, the priorities, and in terms of um, being able to, to plan and not overload your people, you can indirectly influence customer experience. You talked in the book about process creep. Uh, you know, in, in software design, we talk a lot about scope creep. Can you talk about process creep? What is it and how does it fit into this whole picture? Absolutely. In fact, that's a term that I kind of uh, uh, took away from, you know, the same thing in project management. You often talk about scope creep, and, and uh, I always like to talk about process creep, which I sort of uh, extrapolated from, uh, from scope creep. And the thought is part of executing a project or you're launching a product or, or you know, any kind of initiative, it usually involves different departments doing quality checks or executing their part of the process. Maybe you need uh, IT security, and then you need quality control, and then you need some other group. And by the time they all get their hands on it, they, you know, they, everybody looks at it through their own rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every silo has their own agenda and priorities, and they think they're running their own individual company. And nobody's really looking at the whole picture from the customer experience perspective, from the customer's perspective. So next thing you know, it's like the 12 trials of Hercules just trying to get something implemented. Yeah. So you know, we have delays and lead times and things like that. So what I tend to do is I call it a process party. I like to bring, at the beginning of an initiative, bring people together, uh, the, all the players that are part of the process, so they can look at the end-to-end process, map it out on the wall. And often you'll find there's redundancies, uh, there's some trade-offs needed in terms of priorities, or there's some things that a lot of people might be saying, why do we need to do that? And then the people that are right there in the room can explain why we need to do that. Maybe there's a quicker way to do it. Uh, if possible, I even, uh, I even suggest often involving the customer in the session. So everybody sees what has to happen in the process, and this is what it takes. And let's have it as streamlined as possible, but not not more than that. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely crucial in terms of improving customer experience, too, because so often processes, as you say, they creep into place over time, and you need to keep re-looking at them, does this still make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think looking at the whole end-to-end process is another one of Einstein's statements I always loved is uh, where he said everything should be made as simple as possible but not simpler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and your book should be as short as possible but not shorter. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> um, okay. And I, I guess my final question is, do you have any thoughts or suggestions on how to get internal buy-in to putting this sort of evaluation process into place. Yeah, well, I think executive support certainly paves the way. You know, without it, it would have to happen in a grassroots manner. You'd have to sell it to champions, test it out on a small scale. 
But, you know, the fact is for this to work, it really has to be put in place for the, all the areas that share the resources and agree to do it for the, the, the sake of the organization. Uh, it really helps if somebody higher up is endorsing it or at least get everyone to agree that the status quo isn't working. Yeah. Um, you know, I also suggest keeping the process uh, you know, lean and simple. You know, rely mostly on uh, establishing certain points where you're going to have uh, facilitation sessions. Uh, and, you know, again, look at the alignment, the scoring, and the classification as lenses by which everybody agrees to say, well, look at priority in terms of those aspects. But then we're going to have a direct dialogue uh, and you know, because ultimately people have to prioritize the work and agree on how to staff it, and that no system in the world can can really select that. So I think having everybody to agree to say we're going to meet at these certain touch points, and we're going to discuss by exception, we're going to discuss where the bottlenecks are and where the competition is, and then we'll make some decisions on, on what's best to do. So I, I think even as simple as that is good. Some companies try to over-engineer it and allow for every situation, and I think the simpler is better. I think you know, building this those touch points into the process where people can collaborate and discuss, I think is the best way. Well, and perhaps that's part of this, a big part of the strength of it is just getting them into the common room and having that discussion. It is. Yeah. It was the whole thing, you know, 90% of uh, success is showing up. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's it. Um, you had commented earlier that one of the biggest mistakes is simply not even doing this process. What are some of the other common mistakes that you see in this process? One of the key things, if you're trying to implement something like capacity planning, is, again, keep it simple. You're just assessing when you're taking on the work. If you really think about the goals that you're trying to achieve and you know, what is it we're trying to achieve here, it's really saying we, when we take on work, we want to know, at, at least at a role level, do we have the capacity to take this on? And if we don't nail, when can we fit this in? When can we slide this work to the point where we have the capacity? If the work is important enough and the priority is important enough that we do have to do it now, what can we do to make room for it? Because you can't fit a square peg in a round hole. As, many, as much as organizations try, what happens is they say, oh, we'll just have people work harder or work longer. And that, that you know, ultimately turns around into either bad quality or, or health problems or morale problems, and it turns out to bite in the long run. Well, is that a common problem, though, that they really have no idea how long things will take individuals to do? That can happen to a degree. I think I think many things can be assessed at least at a high level to say this is what we think. There's different ways of of leveraging subject matter experts or using a history as, as an example of you know we took on something like this. It took relatively you know there's a lot of different uh, analogous ways to try to come up with a rough estimate. If something is that complicated and that complex. We really have no idea. Then what I often suggest then is launch an initiative just to do the estimate. Do that as a to totally separate okay. initiative to do the estimate, and then you can come in and have a, you know, a better idea of what it's going to take. Is there anything else that you wish I had asked you and I haven't? Well, I'm trying to think. I think we uh, kind of uh, covered the gamut, covered it all. One thing that I do talk about in the book that I think can be helpful helpful to people is a model I, uh, I outline in the book called uh, the capacity quadrant. And it's not something that's something that you purchase or something that you uh, – it's something anybody can really implement and is really looking at capacity planning through four lenses. 
And uh, you know, real simple, the first one is visibility. If you can broaden your view of looking at the full scope of the demand, what's competing for people's time? Um, it's not just the projects, but it's other work that they're doing. Uh, you, know, you know, all the different, just having the visibility over the different kind of things that are competing for people's time. Um, and increasing your view of, of the capacity of what you have, getting some kind of sense, even if it's at a high level, of what people are working on. So what's the capacity that they have available? Uh, and, you know, and what other things can impact that. So uh, visibility, broadening your view, I, I say, is the first of the four things in the capacity quadrant. The second one, and you can almost build a maturity model around this, the second one is prioritization, is understanding what work is important. So if you, if you broaden your view and you have visibility, and then you understand what work is important, and that's the, the model I was talking about where you can look at alignment, you can look at the scoring and the categorization, so you have a sense of what work is important. Well, now I have visibility, I know which work is important. Then you can begin the third, which is optimization. Now I can start optimizing and, and tweaking and focusing on driving efficiency and value. I can determine how do I want to staff for this? Am I staffing effectively? Uh, how do I want to better plan the, the work that I take on and prioritize it? And how can I gain the most productivity out of people, uh, creating an enriching environment and all different things? So that's optimization. And then the third piece is if you have the right, all the right foundation, Fourth. is what I call integration. It's all the planning at multiple levels that has to happen. So you're doing top-down planning, you're doing bottom-up planning, which as people work on projects, you're getting a sense of how long has it been taking them to do things and what do they have available at a more granular level, and having some kind of a governance model where you can have, have governance for the large work, then maybe a more frequent governance for the small work, and how do we manage change that comes in. So, you know, getting the, and I talk Talk about in the book different ways to do that, but um, the uh, but I think the visibility, prioritization, then the optimization, and then the, the integration, the planning at the multiple levels. Those four pieces are a way to frame some kind of a, a maturity model to try to get better in each of those areas. Oh, well, I will certainly be putting a link to the book in the show notes. But this has been really interesting, and and. I hope for your sake and the sales that your editors were correct about using a dry title, <laughs> but I will certainly be encouraging people to read it because I think it was a really very, very good and very useful book. Wonderful. Thank you. I really liked his notion of process creep and the idea of having a process party, kind of like what Marcy Kizak mentioned in last week's podcast where she had a stop-start-continue meeting with her staff, an opportunity to take a look at what are the processes in fact in your organization, apart from in theory, and how can you make them more efficient and effective for staff and for customers. So if you haven't done that in a while, I would really recommend that you start by just doing that, finding out what could you be doing better in the short run as well as the long run. But I think it is also very important that you take to heart some of the things Jerry was saying about the need to actually look at what really is our capacity from a human resources perspective and organize things based on looking at, you know, what's really the most important and effective use of those resources. So doing some priority setting. That's all I've got for you this week. This week's episode came to you live from my hotel room in Calgary so I hope the sound quality is not too bad for you. And I will look forward to chatting with you again next week. In the meantime, if you've got any feedback or comments on the show, 
please feel free to contact me, Tema, T-E-M as in marketing A, at frankreactions.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at Tema Frank, or on LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever. I hope to hear from you. I would always love to get your suggestions and ideas. And in the meantime, October 6th is Customer Experience Day internationally. So have a good one. And I hope that somebody makes your day as a customer wonderful. And I hope that you can do it for somebody else. Bye for now. Music